Hello and welcome to another episode of the Team Guru Podcast. It's the goal of this podcast to bring the theory of team and leadership development to life. Today's guest takes that idea one step further. He uses leadership and teamwork to save lives. Colin Myers is the Executive Director of Critical Care in Brisbane's Metro North which means he carries the ultimate responsibility for the emergency treatment of hundreds of patients a day across four hospitals. There's so much to take from this episode, but for me, the standout feature is just how incredibly aware Colin is of himself as a leader and of the team culture he develops at the front line of patient care. This episode is for anyone who's ever been part of a team that thinks the work they do is too important to waste time thinking about intangibles like teamwork and leadership, that their technical skills and knowledge give them immunity from having to think about the way they work with others. Colin is an executive director and a specialist doctor with decades of experience. But those skills and that knowledge, as impressive as they are, run a distant second behind interpersonal skills in Colin's order of priorities. I came away from this conversation thanking my lucky stars that people like Colin exist, willing to apply their significant intellect and experience towards providing the best possible care to us when we need it most. So, without further ado, I hope you enjoy listening to my conversation with Colin Myers. Colin Myers, thanks very much for uh, joining me to have a chat about teams and leadership. Thanks very much for inviting me. I'm fascinated by this topic and hoping I learn as much as, uh, as I talk. Now, you told me just before we had a chat that uh, you wanted to learn because you're not an expert, but... I can guarantee you, you are an expert in the field that you work in. Colin, do you think it's fair to say that there's no team who works under greater pressure with more at stake than a medical team in an emergency department? It's an interesting question. We certainly work under a lot of pressure where life and death decisions do really matter. Uh, Probably the only other teams that I think might work under similar pressure are, are those in the military in conflict. The, the way that you work together as an emergency team, what do you think the general public have no idea about? It's difficult, isn't it? general public have lots of expectations of us, some of which are reasonable and, and some of which are not. I mean, often I think um, because patients, when they come to an emergency department are in crisis, they focus particularly on themselves, their family and their particular needs, probably not realising that they may be one of 50 or 60 patients in the emergency department at the same time, all of whom deserve that same level of care. So we're often having to spread ourselves very thin to try and ensure that everyone gets the best possible service. So I I think you might be pointing there to one of the biggest challenges you face in an emergency department, and that is how to choose where you spend your time. Absolutely. And, And also how to deal with the emotions that come with a family and an individual who's facing the type of trauma that's brought them here. Mm, We find that particularly difficult because quite reasonably everyone everyone has an expectation that uh, they'll receive the very best of care and it's certainly our intention to do just that. One of the greatest difficulties that my staff face is going home at the end of the day with the awareness that they didn't do the best they could for every patient because they just had so many patients to deal with. Their greatest challenge is that that time. Is that, is that feeling that they didn't you know, they didn't provide the best service for an individual because they were spread so thinly across so many. So tell me, the way that you work together as a team, firstly, do the professionals in a, uh, an emergency department identify as a team? Very much so, very much so. It's a, we always talk about emergency as, a, as very much a team game. 
with uh, doctors, nurses, allied health professionals, our wards people, our um, receptionists, everyone working together to try and uh, provide the best possible care for our patients. And, and how does that team spirit or the team dynamics, how does that come together? Is it something that you work on specifically or does it rely more on, on the, the technical knowledge and the professionalism of the individuals who are on the team? Look, I think there's multiple things. I think it's situational. You throw a bunch of people together in, in adversity with high odds and uh, they automatically start to bond because they need each other. So I certainly think there's an element of that. We also um, do work specifically on teamwork. Um, what and, do you do? Uh, lots, of, lo- lots of things. Increasingly in emergency departments, you'll find that our senior staff members get sent away on leadership courses on how to generate teamwork. We talk a lot about teamwork within our individual and day-to-day work. And, um, and we work on that um, with our colleagues as well so that we're all trying to be on the same page and all uh, realising that we're working together for the same outcome. How does a, uh, a medical professional find themselves in emergency? How do they make that choice? There must be a lot of other options that are far less traumatic in the medical world. I think that's true. I mean, there are lots of jokes about the stereotypes about certain doctors doing certain professions. And I think it's certainly true that certain personality types or people that uh, enjoy the excitement and perhaps the, the difficulties faced by just not being able to predict what you'll do next, it does, emergency does attract those sorts of people to come and, come and play. And uh, if junior doctors and junior nurses come and that doesn't suit their personality, they tend to leave. So, you, so the people who tend to stick around and make a career out of emergency are those who, who like the drama. They like the, the high energy that comes with being in a department like this. I think they like the challenge. Yeah. Um, I, like, I think they like not doing routines um, because our patients are completely unpredictable. You never know what's coming in the door next. It must be, must be tough, though, at the beginning of a, a doctor's career to come in and, and see the type of things they would see in emergency. I think there are obviously emotional challenges in, in working in emergency departments, and that's part of why teams are so important, why we need our senior doctors and nurses to support our junior doctors and nurses in, in facing those challenges. And what about you? How did you find yourself making a career from emergency? Interesting. I, um, I started work in New Zealand, and I worked in a small hospital in New Zealand, and I worked for the first three years about 100 to 120 hours a week. So back in the bad old days. And, uh, That's ridiculous. Um, it was crazy and I was completely burnt out by the end of that. And I left hospital medicine swearing I'd never do it again and went into general practice in small town New Zealand um, part-time and sort of recovered for probably the next year. But I found myself drawn to emergencies and, uh, and to the emergency services. So as the, the, uh, a small town GP, I became the ambulance doctor and the fire doctor and the police doctor and the search and rescue doctor. And I suddenly realised that I was really excited by that sort of work and maybe I should make a profession of that rather than a part-time occupation of it. So it's very much a conscious decision from, uh, made from a point of view where you'd seen another of other things. You, you knew there were different paths in medicine and you, you explicitly chose emergency. Yeah, that's right. I actually moved from New Zealand to Australia to train in emergency medicine. Tell us about the roles that exist within an emergency team. Okay. So, so team, teamwork exists every shift, every day in an emergency department. So we always have nominated leaders um, and different roles for different people. 
So, for example, in, a, in an emergency department like the Prince Charles, we'd have two or three medical consultants on a shift. We'd have eight, nine, ten junior doctors on a shift. And then we'd have similar number of senior nurses and senior, doc- uh, senior nurses and junior nurses, and then senior administrative officers, junior administrative officers. So there's always a, a hierarchy, albeit a flat hierarchy. So we certainly don't have the multiples where the very junior doctor doesn't get to talk to the consultant, which you do find in some inpatient services. Everyone relates to the consultant, and the consultant is the team leader, the, uh, the guidance for everything. They hear about every patient. They make decisions about every patient. They try and review as many patients as they can on a shift. And they are ultimately responsible for the provision of care and the level of service that we provide. And how, how does it come about that someone who finds themselves in that position as the consultant, the team leader? Is it purely an experience thing, a, a hierarchical thing, their, their time in medicine? Or is there an element of the right people, the right type of personality that f- find themselves in that role? Mm. So for us, the team leader role, medically and nursing-wise, comes because of level of experience. But it doesn't mean they're not trained for that sort of thing. So we have junior doctors who are really here learning medicine. So they're learning to put in cannulas, they're learning to take histories, learning to examine patients, and they're supervised quite closely by the consultants. And then as you become um, focused on training in emergency medicine, that is, you make a decision that you want to become an emergency medicine consultant, you then have five years of training, not just in how to look after patients, but in how to run teams. So as you progress from being a junior registrar, seeing doing mainly clinical work, to senior registrar, you spend more and more time supervising others and learning the skills of running a, running a team and being a leader. What do you know now that you didn't know at the beginning of your time as a doctor about running a team and about yourself as a leader? Probably everything is the short answer to that. Yeah. I mean, obviously, when I was a junior doctor, I, I, was pre- I had a very good radar for what was, who I respected and thought was a good leader and who I thought was a bad leader. And I had a lot of bad leaders in, in medicine in my early career. What's, um, what was a bad leader? Bad leaders were autocratic, distant, cold, unresponsive to questions, unsupportive, that sort of a picture. I was, I was a junior doctor who had a very, and I think many, many probably most do, very strong sense of responsibility, ask me to do a job, leave me to do it, don't, don't tell me all the time, just give me responsibility and I'll respond to that. Um, and so those, and I would hardly even call them leaders, but those supervisors, managers. those people, those managers in those positions that didn't allow me that flexibility didn't gain my respect. Is that a time thing? Do you think we as a society have moved on to the point where that type of leadership is not acceptable? Or was that just happened to be your experience as a younger doctor and, and now you're lucky enough to be surrounded by different types? Mm. I think it's probably both, isn't it? I think, um, yes, there was certainly a lot more of that autocratic management um, you know, 20, 30 years ago when I was a junior doctor. And so I think we're very lucky that we've learned a lot since that time. But there's still a lot of medical teams and medical staff who are running that autocratic model. I think that's less so in emergency departments because we are so dependent on each other for the team to work and to be able to provide, provide care for our patients. What are the costs of that autocratic style? Well, I think disengagement and disillusionment from the juniors because they don't feel like they're supported and they don't feel like they're allowed to, uh, to express their own personality and, uh, and try. 
and make mistakes and uh, and learn. Um, it's a very cold and difficult environment rather than a learning environment. Environment that can be so emotionally challenging, that's pretty much the last thing you need, isn't it? Absolutely. That cold Absolutely. type of leadership. Yep. Tell me about the junior doctors that come. When someone comes out of uni, does their, their, their theoretical training and, and has very little practical experience, how useful are they to you in a team? Really good question. Initially, the, the, the doctors in their very first year, we prefer to believe our supernumerary to the team. In other words, we want them to be here to learn, but not to be carrying a high patient load. Now, that isn't always possible. In fact, in most emergency departments, those interns are also carrying a patient load because we don't have enough staff for them not to. And they are variably useful to us. Some people are born natural clinicians. They have good common sense. They've, that they are highly motivated to learn. They've absorbed, the, if you like, the academic stuff that the university has given them. They've used their clinical placements to, to learn and expose themselves to patients. And they come very much junior doctors but very functional others are not so are not so functional and uh, and then they can be a lot of work to assist them to incorporate the clinical knowledge required that they've obviously gained academically in the past but to in incorporate the clinical aspects of the job so that they can start to be functional doctors. And I'm imagining there's all sorts of red flags that you're looking out for, not just from a technical point of view, but from a personal and emotional point of view when those young, young doctors come onto the emergency mm. ward. Mm. I would have to say that the, that the personal and personality issues are by, by far our largest uh, group. So technical issues we can teach. We can teach people how to put in drips. We can teach people to take histories and do examinations. We can even teach people the right questions to ask and uh, the right things to do. It's much harder to teach people how to care for patients, how to interact, how to talk to people, how to get the best out of other people. Those are the things that, are, you know, that we find are the, are the most challenging. So we really need to be selecting the right personalities and the right people to go into medicine not trying to change those things once they've been trained. What about some of the early experiences that you have in emergency and, and the things that you see? Is, is that just a concern I have as a, as a layman outside of medicine? Is it, is it something that a, even a medical student would be okay with because they've had um, exposure to it at, in their studies? Or is there a real concern with some of the, the distressing things that you see individuals come into the emergency ward with? Mm. I think, I think the answer is uh, yes, there are lots of very distressing things that we see in emergency medicine. And so our junior doctors and junior nurses need a lot of support to manage those things. Again, some are naturals. Some manage that internally and emotionally because they've had that sense of stability in their backgrounds or their, uh, uh, or their families. Others do struggle. And there are certainly some junior doctors and nurses that leave again because emotionally they don't handle the pressure. And for those of you who stick it through and make a career out of this, do you build a tolerance or do you build a complete immunity from those things? No. You build a tolerance. So, I mean, I can only speak for myself and say that there are, you know, most things I, you know, I can handle reasonably well. I certainly get distressed if I am forced to have to look after family or close relations or people that work in the department or people that I know, that can be very difficult and I would do my very best to step back from that and let other members of the team do that because I think that's 
dangerous if you if you know people personally. It can be difficult if you're doing major resuscitations on children or vulnerable people like that. But certainly for for older people that are sick and dying, you develop an immunity to seeing that uh, that distress and and just put the patient and their family first. Having said that, I think most of us carry scars of things that we've seen. And although you can work through it and you can put it behind you, it's always there in the background. I'm guessing that the difference between someone who's really cut out for this and someone who's not is that you be able to learn from that and take it on board more easily the next time and, and maintain your, your professional head the next time, uh, having learned from those things. Is that fair to say? Look, I think that's true. And I think what you find for most people in emergency departments is they can maintain absolute professionalism during the event, but perhaps need some time out afterwards. People have asked me in the past, how do you manage a really distressing resuscitation? And I have to say, look, at the time when it's really busy, when I've got four doctors, four nurses, you know, all sorts of people around and things going very badly, I'm treating the, the person as a machine. I'm ensuring that they stay alive. Later on, once that crisis is over, then I can start to deal with the emotional issues for the patient, for the family and for myself and for my team. But, you know, at the time of the crisis, it's really quite technical. Tell me about the, the, the way that professionals perform their roles and, and communicate with each other when their stakes are really high, when there's a lot going on. How do they know what to do and who's going to do what? We actually have those things quite well laid out. So, so for example, you know, the, the commonest uh, way in which this is done is for the trauma team. So a patient that's severely injured and has multiple things going on at the same time, whose life is threatened, we run what's called a trauma team. And uh, there are various models. The model most commonly used in Australia is four doctors, four nurses with designated roles. So one doctor and nurse will be managing the issues around the head, airway, those sorts of things. Other people are doing the cardiovascular stuff, getting in drips, checking those things. Other people are recording. Other people are getting the x-rays and the blood tests done. It's all, you know, a well-oiled team. We actually use the... uh, the example of the pit stop for the Formula One racing cars, where it's all put together very quickly and very slickly. So we actually have those systems in place, posters on the wall, you know, everyone knows their place. And uh, there's a team leader that uh, just organises and dictates what is done across the team. That's fascinating that you use that that race car analogy. It's, mm. a, it's a very useful one. I'm, I'm one for analogies myself when it comes to team. And uh, the race car is certainly one that I like for that that really well-oiled idea It's the precision, isn't it? And people knowing their roles. You know, the idea that the left rear tyre guy is only ever a a left rear tyre guy. And and if he takes half a second longer to do what he should be doing, then he's let the whole team down. Mm. One of the things that we talk about in in the corporate sector, in in white-collar teams, is that it's really difficult for them to have a goal a one challenge that will unite the whole team. That's where, say, a football team has their advantages as a team because their goal is to win the next game. Yep. And, uh, and that's a really easy thing to motivate them. I'm guessing that in your team, the goal is just as clear as it is for a football team. There's probably very little ambiguity like there might be in a white-collar team about what you're all working towards. Mm. So I think, I think the answer is yes and no to that. In terms of the day-to-day goal, you know, the day-to-day goal is to provide the best possible care for all the patients in the emergency department and to balance up the, the, the competing needs of, of all the patients that are there and to protect the team and to ensure that that continues the next shift. 
So on a day-to-day on a day-to-day basis, I think the goals of the team are very clear. On the on the sort of if you like the strategic um, perspective, you know, what is the goal of emergency departments in the long run? It is still clearly to provide that very best of care, but how you do that, how you develop that, is obviously often less clear. Tell us about the type of decision-making pressure emergency staff are under. It's, it's fascinating. We did some research about, um, or not, not me personally, but I, was, I reviewed some research about uh, 18 months, two years ago, that looked at uh, decision-making in emergency specialists in Sydney. And they, they basically showed that emergency medicine specialists make over 100 major decisions an hour. And what that means is uh, that they're having to do things very quickly and quite intuitively. And uh, and I guess that's a skill that they develop over time. They have to go and see some patients. They make other decisions based on uh, ba- based on the person they're talking to. So, for example, I have a good registrar who I trust, who I've seen works well, who's got good clinical skills. They tell me a story that's congruent, that fits with what I know and understand about the likely disease processes. They tell me a story about how they're going to investigate it that makes sense. And I go, that sounds great, go ahead. On the other hand, I talk to a a more junior doctor who doesn't really give me a coherent history and doesn't appear to have examined the patient well and who I've had experience in the past of not really managing to synthesise what's wrong with the patient very well. And I'm going to go, doesn't matter what you tell me, I'm going to see that patient because it's all about risk management. It's about ensuring that that no one falls through the cracks, that no one uh, uh, lines up the the reason Swiss cheese model and that we make mistakes. So emergency physicians are are very good at making many decisions an hour. Um, They're very good multitaskers. If you're not a multitasker, you hate working in emergency medicine because every junior doctor I expect to be seeing three patients at a time and so juggling the needs of uh, three people at a time Unfortunately, they don't manage more, and that's uh, but that's fair. Three patients at a time, when they're complex, is uh, is quite enough. And and uh, and then the, the the emergency specialists are making all these decisions and just balancing all the time. So it's a matter of what is the most important thing to be done next. So uh, I'm you know it is not uncommon for someone from administration to come and and find me to talk to me, and they'll find I'm talking to one doctor. There's two more doctors or three more doctors lined up ready to talk to me. There's buzzers going and alarms going. The phone's ringing, and there's a nurse going, Colin, what does this ECG show? All at the same time, and that's that's the the pressure that emergency physicians work under. And I guess because we continue to do it, we're happy to work under. We enjoy or revel in it, even though it's it's hard. And at the end of the day, you go home knackered. It's uh, it's exciting. You talk to me off record about the role an emergency team plays at an accident or at the scene of a disaster. Can you tell us a little bit about that? A, uh, a very close friend of mine, Jerry Fitzgerald, who's uh, a professor at QUT, has uh, said, said to me, you know, there's never been a disaster in Australia with 15 or 20,000 patients, other than the number of patients that present to emergency departments across Australia every day. Yeah. yeah. So the first thing I guess I would say is that emergency departments are controlled disasters a lot of the time, but you up the ante even more with a bus crash or a train crash or that sort of thing. And uh, I've had the the fortune, and some people might say the misfortune, to be site medical commander at a number of those sorts of incidents, and it's and it's fascinating how things almost go into hyperdrive at that point. And I've certainly experienced it in emergency departments as well, when you've got multiple critically ill patients at the same time, and essentially, you just have to make decisions almost instantaneously and get other people to do the work for you. And so. 
Uh, at a bus crash, I can remember, for example, you know, in an hour, basically seeing, assessing, managing, and uh, and not pers- not d- just myself, but with the team that I had there, 50 patients, and they went from all on site to all off site within the hour. So, um, and all you know, obviously going to hospital. Uh, I've had many other experiences like that in emergency departments, where essentially you allocate a junior doctor and a junior nurse to each patient. And then the senior person just goes around and spends five minutes each with each patient going, okay, we're up to this point, please do that for me now. Let me examine this thing. No, I'm going to do it that way now and carry on. And so you just keep doing circuits, essentially, of the department, ensuring that uh, the most critically ill are dealt with next before the lesser, exa- before the lesser issues uh, are done. There's just an enormous amount of trust between team members there. When you're making the decision, moving on to the next critically injured patient and leaving it to someone else to follow up on the decision that you've made. And that's, and that's interesting, isn't it? And that's the, that's the trust we've talked about that's part of the teamwork. You know, we all completely depend on each other in emergency medicine in a way that uh, other specialties don't necessarily, where it can be a much more linear thing where a consultant is making a decision about a patient in front of them and doing whatever's necessary for them. Um, and it's a very much one-to-one relationship, whereas in emergency medicine, you know, as the consultant and leader of the team, it's a one of me to, to 10 doctors, 10 nurses and 50 patients. And it's a, so it's a much more complex interrelational um, perspective going on. In that very busy, critical environment, do you encourage junior doctors to make decisions that you might otherwise make? The short answer is uh, is yes, but within boundaries. So, as I men- as I mentioned before, I'm always risk managing. So, the more senior a doctor, and the more I have seen them work and trust their performance, the more I'll let them make decisions without me, and uh, and trust that when they make those decisions, they're sensible. And the more junior a doctor, and it isn't just about being junior or senior, but the the less I can trust a clinician to know how to take a history, do an examination and have common sense about what to do next, the more tightly I'll supervise them. It's interesting. In those emergency situations, it is probably the only time that I become completely directive. So in that sort of situation, I tell people what to do and expect it to be done. Any other time of the day or week, I'm consultative. I will put forward what I think, expect, expect opinions back, do, make joint decisions. But under that sort of pressure, I make the decisions and I expect other people to follow through. What sort of situations have you been part of where you're making decisions between one patient whose life is threatened and another? That becomes relatively common in emergency departments because we always have that huge potential because, because the workload is not controlled, because we don't know who's turning up next and how many people are turning up next. And so it's normal in an emergency department to have even 15 or 20 people turn up within an hour. Now, I don't have the resources to manage that. And if, uh, if a significant number of those people are very sick, we're always having to make choices. Now, structurally and from a systems perspective, we'll immediately try and call more people in, get more resources, try and develop uh, you know, other ways of dealing with it. But when the chips are really down, you, know, you do have to make tough decisions around who needs me the most right now. You know, is it the person uh, that's bleeding or is it the person that's having the heart attack? And can I, if I go and see the person with a heart attack, get enough done for them to make ensure they're safe before you know, coming back to the person that's bleeding? Which you do first becomes intuition and common sense and experience. You just have to do, make a decision to do one, being very aware that you've then got to go and do the second and third as well. How do you deal with regrets about the decisions you make? 
It's interesting. In terms of debriefing, and we do debrief on our major resuscitations, what I find with clinical staff that do this for a living is that if clinically we've done the right thing, even if the person then dies, and, uh, and that happens, I mean, we can't save everyone, then most clinicians are comfortable with that. When we haven't done the best job, that becomes much more difficult, and that's where people have regrets. And look, you know, to be honest, you can, you know, you're never perfect all the time. We do make mistakes. And when you do, we have a, a very open, constructive way of dealing with mistakes. We don't believe in beating up on individuals. We believe that most mistakes in emergency departments are system-related. We work in a big team, and when things go wrong, it's rarely an individual. It's almost always the system, the resources, the fact that uh, you know the consultant didn't hear about it at the right time, or we didn't have enough junior doctors to get to it early enough, or somehow someone junior just doesn't have that experience to make that diagnosis. So we try and keep a very non-judgmental approach to audit. We have very open M&M, we talk about the cases, we help everyone to learn, and we admit our mistakes so that we don't make them next time. What have you seen change in your time in emergency? You've talked about the autocratic style of leaders that you came across early in your career, hmm. uh, whether by chance or whether that was an era thing. What else have you seen change? Not, not from a technical point of view, because I'm sure a lot's changed around the type of equipment that you use, yep. but from the way that people work together. So I think there, there has been a lot more development of, of teams. I think the workload going through emergency departments uh, now is vastly higher than it was 20 years ago. They're busier. Much busier. Probably twice, three times as busy as they were. So bigger teams, more staff, more patients and huge throughputs. You know, the emergency departments here in Metro North are seeing between you know, 150 and 250 patients a day each. Um, and that's a lot of patients to, to be seeing and sorting in a time of crisis. So I think that's a real issue. The throughputs are very high. The buildings are often not adequate. The staffing is probably not adequate to really do the best job that we'd like to. And so we're very much always trying to do the best that we can with the resources that we've got. So the, uh, the, the fact that you're doing so many, so much more work, so many more patients, does that just mean that as a, as a state we're not keeping up with the number of hospitals? I think, I think there's been a, an enormous shift towards people accessing emergency departments, and that's partly the ageing population, partly increasing expectations, and partly some of the structures that we've put around the health system. So, for example, uh, you know, if, as you'd be well aware, there is a, an expectation that a patient can come to an emergency department and be seen and go home within four hours, and we have targets for that, currently um, you know, sitting between either 80 or 90% of patients seen and discharged within four hours, then, uh, then there's a real driver for people to come to emergency departments because they can, 24 hours a day, get high levels of care with all their blood tests done, all their x-rays done, see a consultant, get a plan and go home in very short time frame. So we have a swing, if you like, towards people using health services 24 hours a day, just like they want their supermarkets open, they want their lawyer to be available, they think their teacher should be available 24 hours a day. And so there's this change in society which has made emergency departments a great deal busier. Now, it's not our goal to get political here in this podcast, but when you hear about ideas like a Medicare co-payment, from an emergency department point of view, does that really make you concerned or were those concerned hyperbole from political opponents? No, I'd be very concerned. And certainly the emergency, the emergency fraternity would be significantly concerned about co-payments because that does drive poorer people 
towards emergency departments, and uh, most emergency departments were already busting at the seams. I'm guessing that not all emergency department teams are equal. I'm sure that there are some that are better than others. Those really crack emergency department teams, the, the ones that are, are more effective than most, what do they know or what do they do or how do they lead each other that allows them to be better than most? So, so, so I was going to answer, the, you know, the one, the, the one thing that makes a difference is leadership. And so if we go back to the issues, because it's the microcosm of what we do in the broad, the trauma team is uh, the, the single thing that makes the biggest difference is the team leader in a trauma team because they direct what happens in that particularly difficult and fraught situation. In the, in, in the broader situation, we have a great deal of variation in our teams because, as we've already discussed, I have different, uh, different consultants leading teams on different days and different shifts. Some have better skills as leaders than others. And I often say to people, look, you know, they all have enormous skills clinically. A thing that differentiates the, the, you know, the really good team leaders from the really not so good team leaders is those skills in leadership. That's what really makes the difference to a team on a day. And as their boss, as the executive director of that department, yep. what, what do you do? What are your intervention steps? Okay. So we talk a lot about leadership. We have had recently um, some work with the consultants in this department um, around resilience and managing stress and leading teams. And uh, we had a, a sports psychologist to assist us with that. I have sent the majority of my team away on various leadership programs to encourage everyone to develop the, the best skills that they can. And we continue to focus as a team on what it is that uh, leadership means and how we run the teams best on a day-to-day -day basis. What does it mean to you? If I was on your staff and you were sending me to a leadership program and I asked you, what do you want to see different about me? Mm. What, what does the word leadership mean to you and what does it mean to you that you're developing my leadership? So, so I guess the, we're, we're coming down now to beliefs in leadership style or what it is that leadership means. And, and for me, leadership means creating the best possible environment for you to function as a leader. So my job as leader of an emergency department is to look after, support, develop, encourage, inspire my consultants as the, as the team leaders and my senior nurses as team leaders so that they look after the junior doctors and nurses so that they look after the patients. So it really is a very flat hierarchical approach where we're trying to develop all of the staff all of the time. You're an executive director. That's the level you operate. There's a lot of people who work under you, you know, in one way or another. Mm. How are you viewed as a leader? What's your style? I, uh, last, last year I did another leadership program with part of the College of Emergency Medicine. So I can, I can answer that from the data rather than from what I'd like, which might be two different things. So, so the, the, the areas that I score particularly strongly in are the sort of the collaborative, supportive, teamwork, um, team building sort of styles, and less so in those areas of autocracy and demand and expectation, and less so in those coercive, uh, um, those coercive modes of you know, passive-aggressive management. So I appear to have those, if you like, consultative skills that is what I value and what I always railed against not having as a junior doctor, which is about encouraging the team and encouraging others to do their very best. And are those things um, that you mentioned that you're strong in, are they part of your personality? Are they authentic traits as Colin Myers the person, not just Colin Myers the executive director? 
Look, they they appear to be from the from from the way I've done the, that that testing. That is the way I perceive myself. It's also the way colleagues perceive me. So, without trying to blow my trumpet, it seems to be that's my natural personality, and therefore, I don't find it hard to do that sort of stuff. I find it hard to do other things like challenge bad behaviour or stand up for myself. So, because obviously, if you've got one set of skills well developed, it means you tend to have other skills less developed. So I have to work more on those sorts of things, and and if there's uh, if there's things that I've had to do to develop my leadership style since I've been in this role in the last sort of five years or so, it is about being firmer and calling people out when they're not behaving appropriately and doing those what are perceived as negative things to encourage the team to function rather than just being encouraging and supportive and nurturing. You talked a little bit earlier about the uh, the leaders you worked under as a younger doctor. Um, and you learned a lot. We, we all learn a lot by the leaders we don't want to be like. Yep. What about the leaders and the, the mentors, the people in your life who you did want to be like? When you think about those, those traits that you value, your interpersonal skills, where did that come from? It probably comes from my family, you know, in terms of my own personality. But when I look in other, at other leaders, the things that I value were always those things. The, the, the ability of a leader to say to me, Colin, I need this done to be supportive, to be nurturing, to care about me, but then to let me go ahead and do it. You know, go ahead, do it, you know, make mistakes if necessary because I won't make it twice. Is, is there anyone in particular in your journey who you can look back to and think, you know, I, I took some real steps towards being the leader I am with that person? Mm. There was, uh, when I first moved to emergency medicine, there was a, uh, there was a leader, um, a guy by the name of Frank Garlick, who was a, a surgeon, and not hadn't done emergency medicine, and it was in the days when emergency medicine was perhaps there weren't as many trained emergency medicine specialists, and, and Frank was an ex-surgeon, but one of the most nurturing guys I've ever met and, uh, and a lovely person to work for, particularly when I was driven and self-motivated anyway. All he did was support me to do what I was driven to do. But uh, I very much uh, value his style and his leadership. Interestingly, um, a couple of years ago, I was, uh, I was trekking in Nepal and uh, did Everest Base Camp and High Passes trip. And, uh, and I was absolutely inspired by, our, by, the, by the Sherpa that led that group of, you know, a, a dozen Australians and, and half a dozen uh, Sherpas and, uh, and, uh, and, and various team members. He was very quietly spoken, very calm, very contained, but nurturing, smiling, lovely, and didn't have to say much, but the team just worked brilliantly with him. So he was also a, a hero. I just looked at him and thought, he's a really good leader. He probably doesn't know it. He's probably had absolutely zero training, but he just does it really well. That's an incredible story. You're so right. You know, we can, we can work on these things and we can have the argument about whether leader, leadership is nature or nurture. Mm. Uh, but when you come across someone like that, it just reminds us all that there are personality traits and there are people who are naturally great leaders but mm. that doesn't mean that we can't develop ourselves as leaders now just i'm, I'm just going to harp on this one a little bit longer tell me about any any books or principles or theories that you've read because you've obviously had a lot of development specifically about leadership is there mm. anything in that time that really stands out to you that you really caught hold of and, and helped you understand what you do or, or even improve the way that you go about things mm-hmm. look i think I've read lots of books, and there's nothing that there's nothing that I go. That's my Bible. That's what I do all the time. I think uh, there's lots of ideas and theories out there. I think the things that have probably helped me the most are those those times when I've sat down 
and worked with a mentor or with uh, in a leadership development group and tried to better understand the aspects of my personality and the things that I do naturally well, but equally the things that I don't do naturally well and I need to work on some more. So I've had the valuable experience of doing a number of those courses, but then working one-to-one with mentors that I think can be really valuable if they get to know you well and understand your personality and can both encourage you but also challenge you, challenge you when you're avoiding issues or not quite seeing the, seeing the point of things. The mentor thing, is that something that the medical profession does well? It's not something that until recently the medical profession has done formally. So I think individuals can do it well. And so you'll find some doctors that you look at and go, they really nurture their staff and uh, encourage them and mentor them. There's, uh, there's others that clearly don't, and we've talked about that. In emergency departments in the last five or ten years, we've got organised programmes where all our junior doctors have a mentor, one of, you know, a senior doctor as a mentor, and likewise our nursing staff do the same. So it's certainly being focused on more and more. So your mentor is not the person assessing you, not the person that's marking you and deciding whether you pass the term but is someone that is there to understand your particular issues, hear about the issues that you're having at home, the difficulties you're having at work, and trying to support and encourage you. As someone who's benefited from mentor relationships, do you see that those programs are as effective as you'd like them to be, as effective as if everybody developed a true organic mentor relationship with someone that they chose? Mm. So, look, I think that's really interesting, isn't it? I think if you can really find your own mentor that you really get along with but that is willing to challenge you, because I think you know, we've got to choose to be challenged. We can't just choose to be nurtured. I think it's both. Then I think that's probably better. But I think for a lot of us, having someone given to us is a whole heap better than having nothing. I'm always fascinated, uh, you would know this as a medical professional, the Eric Erickson stages of psychological development fascinate me and I know that one of the middle stages of our own human development is that we, we have a need to uh, share our knowledge with the next generation, that regeneration stage. Mm-hmm. Do doctors feel that need professionally? Is that something that the good doctors or, or even just the mature doctors, you, you see that they have a, dr- a burning need to want to share their experience with the younger doctors? Mm. I think, I think the answer to that is absolutely yes. In actual fact, we were, we were asked the other day, you know, probably based on funding issues, how much of our work was education and how much was clinical? And the answer is it's 100% clinical and 100% education. So it's both, all crossed up. So, so if I think about how I teach, then every moment that I'm on the floor clinically running the department as the team leader, I'm also supporting junior doctors, listening to their stories, suggesting other ways of doing things, asking them if they've done certain things, and they might go, no, go back and find out for me because this is important. What are the risk factors for this? How would you diagnose that? And then going and looking at the patient with them and saying, so this is how I'd examine them. These are the questions I think are important. I think the diagnosis is probably this. What I want you to do out of that is do these tests, and then we'll talk to X, Y, Z. That's all teaching. It's all teaching. So it's hard to find a part of our role that isn't teaching, Leadership and teaching completely intertwined. Leadership, management and teaching really completely intertwined. And then, of course, there's formal teaching, which we do a lot of too. Here's a a lecture about this. Here's a talk about that. Here's a discussion about the other. Let's do a PowerPoint about this. 
how would you you know how would you handle the other so it's informal on the floor it's formal on the floor it's formal in lectures basically everything we focus on is handing on the knowledge that the seniors have got to the junior doctors now and it can be to our junior doctors that are decided to be emergency specialists and are learning to be emergency specialists but equally it's to all doctors because all doctors have to do a, a term in emergency so it's to all doctors get exposed to the the work and the understandings and the way of caring for patients that emergency medicine specialists provide in their early training. So a lot of it is to those doctors who will, know, who will not in the future work in emergency medicine, but hopefully carry a little bit of that experience with them. So Colin, you're the executive director of emergency here at uh, Prince Charles Hospital. How much of your time do you spend on the coalface as opposed to in your office doing administration work or, or whatever other duties that uh, come your way? Mm. How's your mm. time divided? So uh, I took on a, a new job last year as Executive Director of Critical Care for Metro North, which means I'm certainly there as the team leader for four emergency departments and, uh, and three intensive care units across Metro North. So that sort of split me up even more, if you like. So currently, I'm working a quarter of my time on the floor. So I do a 10-hour shift every week. And I do Monday day shift, which is the busiest shift. Where you're the consultant? Where I'm the consultant on the floor and, and running the floor and driving the team and nurturing the juniors. And uh, yep, and I love that. I really love it. The rest of my time is taken up with leadership and or management and I prefer to think most of it's leadership so what am I doing I'm doing looking at quality and safety issues strategic issues around the development of emergency departments staffing how to create new models of care as well as yes obviously plugging on with the emails and uh, but a lot of it's about uh, around trying to support my teams to and and individual consultants and uh, and senior nursing staff to uh, to do better look at ways and look at things in a different way and, uh, and therefore develop themselves so that they can do the jobs that I've done in the past. So the fact that you still spend a 10-hour shift on the coalface, on the floor, um, fascinates me because there, I'm sure you can make an argument that you've got so much to do, you haven't got time for that. Mm. But is it a professional thing where you need to continue that part of your role in order to do the rest of your role properly? I believe so. I, I, think, it, I think it's about having the professional skills and the credibility with the team that I can still cut it with them if I have, you know, if and when I need to, and I do it every week on the floor and run the department and and uh, and run the busiest shift. So, yes, I think it's very important that I do that. It's also part of the model that uh, Metro North HHS has put in, so the clinical directors, you know, are expected to still be on the shop floor, still um, being clinicians. Do the junior doctors get nervous working with you? You'd have to ask them that. I I do my very best not to uh, not to create that. But I'm sure there is an element of, oh, God, the boss is around, you know, what do I do now? But I'm certainly doing my very best to try and uh, you know, not create expectations that I have unreasonable you know, expectations that, that, that people will do different for me than they would for others. How did you get the role as executive director? What is it about you? We've, you've given us a fantastic insight to you as a leader. What else is it about you that put you in this position? Because I'm... I'm guessing not everyone who spends their career in emergency rises to the level of executive director. What have you got? Probably need to ask my team that. Um, look, I, you know, when I applied for the job, I think the things that I emphasised were the breadth of my experience. So I've been a general practitioner. I've worked in emergency medicine in um, New Zealand and uh, two states in Australia. 
I've run retrieval services, and so I understand that interface with the small hospitals, you know, very sick patients going and basically rescuing patients and bringing them back to uh, big places. I've uh, been involved in disaster medicine. I've been overseas on humanitarian aid work. I'm a reserve uh, Air Force officer. So I've done, you know, I've got a lot of practical experience across um, a lot of different things. And I'm really passionate about seeing change and development and just providing the best possible care that we can, and particularly around the interfaces between emergency medicine and general practice and community and emergency medicine and inpatient services, because this is often where the difficulties come is not within the emergency department but within the boundary interfaces between the emergency uh, team, if you like, and, and, and others and, and those communications. If you were going to write your book about running a, a great emergency department, what would some of the chapter titles be? That's a really interesting question, isn't it? I would immediately probably divide it into the clinical work and the particular, the particular types or, or the areas of expertise of emergency medicine. What is it that makes emergency medicine different from other specialties? And sometimes that can be hard to see because you know, it's, it's easy to think that we're a jack-of-all-trades and masters of none because uh, we do some cardiology and some respiratory medicine and some surgery, and, but we're not experts in any of those fields. The areas that we are probably expert in is immediate resuscitation and diagnostics because people come to emergency departments with a completely open slate as to what's wrong with them and they leave mostly with a clear diagnosis of what's going on. So we take completely undifferentiated patients and we make them a lot clearer and and in our terminology packaged, that is, that they have a diagnosis, that they have their tests done and there's a clear pathway for them to follow. Going back into general practice, being referred to other specialists outside the hospital or coming into hospital as an inpatient. So the first aspects will be about the clinical aspects of emergency medicine, how to be a good doctor, but what it is about emergency medicine that is special and different. The next chapters will probably be about how to operationalise emergency departments. And because they're big teams, there's an awful lot of management um, that does go on. So there's a lot of policies, a lot of protocols, a lot of trying to develop pathways so that junior doctors and junior nurses know what it is that we expect of them a lot of orientation manuals, a lot of education, a lot of training, so that the care in emergency departments is consistent across a 24-hour period with large numbers of staff rotating through different shifts. So that's the second aspect of it. And then the third, third aspect of it really is about leadership, personal development, and the developing of doctors and nurses and allied health to be the best possible clinicians and people that they can be. What do you think happens in a team of emergency professionals that is the same for every good team? What's ubiquitous about teamwork? I think what's ubiquitous about teamwork is communications. Without communications, you don't have teamwork. And I think then it's about leadership skills and about follower skills. So communications comes first. Leadership skills we've talked a lot about. You know, our good leaders are natural at it. We can train them to be even better at it so that they are running the team and supporting our junior, our junior staff at all times. Then obviously we need to give our juniors enough framework, enough um, encouragement to develop themselves. And, uh, and that's something that we do every day as well. And then finally, it's pulling all that lot together so that everyone knows the roles that they're in, so that when the chips are down, things happen smoothly, easily, reproducibly, and the patients therefore get the best possible chance of survival and the best possible care. Where's emergency medicine heading? What's going to change? 
That's a, that's a very interesting question. It's really tied in with where healthcare across, uh, across Australia and the Western world is going. Emergency medicine has developed enormously in the last 20 years. And so it has become its own profession, very much uh, you know, a very high cost component of a hospital. More and more of the work of a hospital is actually being done at the front doors. So people that uh, 10 or 20 years ago would have come into hospital and had several days of inpatient care are essentially worked up, diagnosed, sorted and sent home from the front door. So I think that has, if you like, streamlined care enormously. I think what emergency medicine needs now, it's almost at a crossroads. What it needs is to develop really clear and swift pathways into the hospital. Um, hospitals are very full, occupancy is very high. We need to be able to move on the patients that need hospital care, need more than an emergency department can provide. But we really need to develop relationships with our general practitioner colleagues. We need to move some of the work that we're doing back towards community, be it the way in which we do the work and then refer back to uh, community, or we encourage patients to attend in different ways. But our communications are the key issue. Currently we have no communication systems with our GPs other than Hand, you know, handwritten letter and fax it. Uh, we really need that electronic interface so we can see what GPs are doing and GPs can see what we're doing. And so I think IT solutions, you know, a much better visibility of the whole of the patient and the whole of their patient care is really going to help us in the next 10 or 15 years. We uh, Currently, I struggle to even see what, uh, what happened last night at the Royal Brisbane here at Prince Charles and that's got to change because we're looking at integrated healthcare, we're looking at person-centred records. I'd love to see people carrying their own records on a USB chip so that when they arrive, I've got a clear picture of what other people have done for them. And the technology exists. and, and Technology exists. There. It's not rolled out. I often, I often compare what I was able to do in general practice with, uh, with what I can do here in emergency medicine. Now, the, the technical capacity for me here in an emergency department is enormous compared to a general practice. I can, I can uh, do things to people and, uh, and very invasive things and, and get tests that I was completely unable to do in general practice. But what I did have in general practice, because I saw the patient repeatedly, knew their family, knew their relationships, knew where they lived, was I had a longitudinal picture of a patient. That I don't have in, emergency in an emergency department and it's a huge disadvantage. Um, so a patient could come in to me with heart failure and I would look at them and go, but I only saw you last week and, and I decreased your, your tablets for your heart failure and, and now you're worse, so I'm going to increase your tablets again and send you home. You come to an emergency department with the same problem, you don't know you're likely to get admitted because I don't have the background. So IT and technology that gives me that picture will allow me in an emergency department with all that technological backup to still function more like a GP in terms of understanding you and your situation, even though it's the first time I've ever met you. Colin, you've got to go very soon. I'm going to ask you my final four rapid questions so we get to know the inherent Colin Myers. Tell me about the Saturday night you would most look forward to. An intimate dinner with friends or a party with lots of people you know? Oh, the intimate dinner. Absolutely. Um, the part, you know, the the party the, the party is often difficult with the loud the, with the loud music. It's fun, but, abs but but I'm a much more relational person, so I like the quieter, less noise, more intimate surroundings. Are you likely to get caught bogged down in the detail, or daydreaming? That's interesting. I'm a little bit of both. I don't do a lot of daydreaming, but I'm not I'm not really a details person. I you know I I absolutely value in my team having those people that deal with the detail because I'm very much an ideas person, 
but I never have time to daydream, so I must sit in between those two. <laughs> All right. Uh, are you a slave to rational thought process or you make decisions on emotion? Again, I'm halfway. I'm sorry. I can't, I can't be the yin or the yang. So, yeah, I'm, I'm obviously, as a doctor, I'm a trained scientist, believe in uh, evidence-based medicine, always looking for the evidence. But I'm a great believer that medicine is not just a science but an art. So I will use my gut feelings as well and often do. And I think probably those highly developed... Difficult to know whether it's, whether it's intuition, gut feeling, or whether it just is about having seen an awful lot of patients... But often what differentiates me from my junior doctors is I just know what's wrong with the person and they have to work hard to find out. Intuitive. Yeah. Last question. You're going on a road trip. Do you want to plan the route, book the hotels in advance and know exactly where you're going or do you just get in the car and drive? (laughs) If I play the devil's advocate and go both ways. Depends (laughs) what it's about. Sometimes you need to have it all booked, organised, structured. What I'd most like to do if I, if I answer that question by saying, if I had three months off to do whatever, I would go back to New Zealand, where, which is where I trained, and I'd spend three months walking the, southern, the, 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 the tracks in the Southern Alps, in the, in the South Island. In other words, unstructured. Very good. Colin Myers, you've been so generous with your time. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. You would have noticed that a couple of times through our chat, Colin's phone rang furiously. I didn't go to any great effort to edit it from the audio because I think it sent a valuable message of its own. Colin is a man in unthinkable demand. His time and attention save lives. In fact, I sat listening to those calls that remain unanswered, hoping it wasn't costing anyone the ultimate price. But such is Colin's interest and commitment to the concepts of teamwork and leadership development. His awareness of himself as a leader is matched only by his determination to ensure the people he works with have the same opportunities to develop that he had himself. As always, I'll share the lessons I took from this episode on the Lessons Learned page of this podcast. You'll find it on the Team Guru website. That's teams with an S dot guru forward slash podcast. And keep an eye out on the Team Guru website for the next episode on this, my mission to bring the theory of team and leadership development to life. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now. 